It's one of these great poets of 1984, one of the, probably the greatest, I don't really remember 1984 because I was two, but one of the great poets of 1984, Bonnie Tyler, once wrote, where have all the heroes gone and where are all the gods? And Bonnie Tyler probably didn't know it, but in her song, Holding Out for a Hero, which has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, she actually introduced the theme of Advent. The theme of Advent is a waiting, is a wondering, is anticipation. And it's asking the question, where have the heroes gone? Where is God? And it's a question that probably we ask sometimes in our own lives, maybe some of us more than others, but we wonder where God might be in the midst of our circumstances. When the prophet Isaiah wrote, These words in Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. They were in a time of waiting and wondering, where is God? Where are the heroes? Because they were in a place where God was silent because they were going through persecution. They were invaded by the Assyrian army and they were being taken captive. And as we follow the story of Isaiah, there are various armies, Assyria and Babylon, that take Israel captive. And they're asking the question, well, where is God in the midst of this? And God speaks through Isaiah saying, there's going to be a child born and he has four titles. Last week, we talked about the first title, Wonderful Counselor. This theme of this supernatural wisdom and direction that is given by this child for those who will follow him. And today, we're going to talk about the second title, which is Mighty God. This is a title that is significant because these words that get used to describe this child are meant to inform us years later, that Jesus is the very person they waited for. It meant to inform us now that this title, Mighty God, still symbolizes Jesus. The word that gets used for God is is El or Elohim here in the, the Old Testament. And so Typically, when in the Old Testament, if you read through it, there are different titles that get given to God. God get, never gets named, but he's given titles to describe who he is. And here it would be Mighty God. And so God is El, and Elohim uh, is the, uh, the plural version of that. And then Gabor is strength, which is mighty. So El Gabor is the language. And that word mighty means strong or powerful warrior, or hero. So when this group of people heard it for the first time, knowing that they've been invaded or there's always a constant threat of invasion of other armies, they would hear that someday there would be rescue coming in the form of a mighty warrior who is God. And so these early people in the story of God, would say, this is who we're waiting for. And that's the theme of Advent, of waiting. This idea that we're constantly waiting for Jesus to show who he is. 
We now, in you know, the 21st century, we know that Jesus showed himself in the first century, that God stepped into human history in the person of Jesus who exemplifies this wonderful counselor, mighty God. And so what does it look like for Jesus to be mighty God? That's the question we want to kind of look at today. And what does that mean for the first century context? What does that mean for us today as well? And so when we read through Scripture, there are various times that Jesus is described in different ways. And maybe the term mighty God is not used in the New Testament, but the symbolism of it is. So in John's Gospel, it starts off saying that everything was made through him, and that without him, nothing has been made, in John 1.3. And then in the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 1, 16, 17, he said that all things were created by him and for him, and in him all things hold together. So Jesus is the one who is God, mighty God. And his understanding that Jesus, though came in a person that we celebrate the baby being born at Christmas, pre-existed in what's called the Godhead. There's an idea of the Trinity. And that he was present in creation. So he is mighty God. But the person of Jesus, as we see through Scripture, also demonstrated that power, that might, that strength. There's a few stories in the New Testament, the Gospel accounts, that demonstrate that. And typically they demonstrate it through how Jesus has power over creation. So sometimes it's demonstrated through healing people who are sick. There's multiple stories of people with skin diseases or leprosy, people who are in suffering and pain, maybe are unable to move, and Jesus heals them. So he demonstrates how he has strength and might in that regard. He supernaturally steps into the natural world and makes things the way they're supposed to be. But one of the stories that I always find important in understanding how Jesus is this mighty God is one that gets repeated in a few of the Gospels, and Mark chapter 4 is where we're going to look at it. And it's a story that many of us might be familiar with because it's a story that often gets repeated in church. I think actually this summer, if you were here, I think it was preached on twice in the summer when I wasn't here. So, sorry. It was three times in like six months. But, but that's the beauty of Scripture. Uh, is that though we've heard these stories before, it's the beauty of the Christmas story too. We've heard this story before, we've read it maybe many times, but every time we read it or we have someone reflect on it with us, we might find something else that's beautiful and amazing and true in it. The ancient rabbis used to call Scripture a, a gem of many sides, and that every time you turned it, it would shine its beauty in a new way. So every pastor you've listened to, Every time you've done your own devotions, God has used those moments to show the beauty of Scripture in a different way at a different time to speak to what you may need in those moments. And so in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, he tells this story that's very familiar to some of us. And maybe it's new for others of us. It says, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. So Jesus had been healing, Jesus had been teaching, and it's the end of the day, and he says, okay, let's go over to the other side, across the water, and let's rest. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat. There were also other boats with him. 
a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion, and the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, I haven't been on many boats, but I've been on a few, usually smaller boats, and usually it's fishing, and sometimes it's canoeing. And whenever that boat is moving, I am well aware how much it is moving in that water. It makes me incredibly nervous. One time we went on a fishing, on a camping trip, and we were canoeing, and I was with this teenager uh, who was a wonderful young person, but he kept rocking the canoe. And we were in Algonquin Park canoeing for hours, and I'm like, stop rocking this canoe. And inevitably, it tipped. But you know when it's shaking. But for in this moment, Jesus is in the stern of the boat. He's right at the front, and he's sleeping, just sleeping. And these aren't, you know, boats like we have today that are, don't rock so much. These are fishermen's boats from the first century. They're moving. Most people would be awake in that moment. But he is calm. He's asleep. And so his followers go, don't you care? How can you be sleeping in this moment? But he got up, he rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. So in the moment when Jesus is calm and everybody else is panicking, and I think rightfully so, I would be panicking with them, he just gets up and says, hey, wind, knock it off. If that's not mighty God, I don't know what is. If I were to speak to the wind yesterday that was happening and blowing off branches in my backyard and said, hey, knock it off, the wind would just keep going. It didn't care. But even the wind and waves listen to Jesus. So his closest followers, as they're in this moment, and they're in this moment, and they've been walking with him, and they've been traveling with him, and he's been teaching. They've been hearing what he's been teaching. They're seeing who Jesus is in the flesh right in front of them, encountering those moments. As they're doing that, they still don't understand who he is, what he can do. And so as the wind and waves come crashing around, he demonstrates he is mighty God. He is who they have waited for. So the people in Isaiah's time had been waiting for someone just like this. And the amazing thing is that the people didn't recognize when he was right in front of them. His closest followers, his closest friends, people who had been traveling around with him for time, didn't see that he was the one who was called mighty God. They didn't know it to be true. And so he shows it. He shows it in his healings. He shows it in how he calms the storm. He shows it how he's calm in the presence of a fearful moment. He shows that he can be trusted to care for him. Jesus is mighty God. When we encounter these titles of Jesus, it can be easy to just kind of glance over them and just not pay much attention to what it might mean for us. We can look at it and go, okay, so we know that way in the past, for Isaiah's people, they needed to know 
that there was a Savior who was coming. And we can look at it and say, well, okay, well, we know that when we celebrate Christmas, when we celebrate Advent, it's a reflection on that time when Jesus did come. Jesus arrived on the scene. And we can reflect on it and go, okay, well, that's good. And we can have a Merry Christmas. And we can have Christmas lights and presents and sing songs that we love. But what does it mean that the one who is wonderful counselor, mighty God, is the one who died on the cross for you? He's not just the baby who was born. He was the man who lived, who died, who rose again for the forgiveness of our sin, so that we could experience life in all its fullness. What does it mean that Jesus is mighty God for you? We sang in these songs, some great Christmas songs, and we asked the question, well, how many kings would step off their throne and be there for you? Jesus, who is fully deserving of royalty, of, of magnification, of understanding that he is to be worshipped, but he steps out of the throne of heaven to be with us. Mighty God with us. So how should you, how should I respond and live because Jesus is mighty God? I think the first thing is we need to trust him. We need to trust that Jesus is our mighty God. It's one thing to believe in Jesus, and I'm sure that many of us here believe. Some of us are still unsure maybe of what we believe. But it's one thing to believe, it's another thing to trust. Scripture even says that even the demons believe and they shudder. What does it mean to trust Jesus? Well, it means to trust that he is that wonderful counselor, the one who has wisdom and guidance in a supernatural way for our lives daily. It means to trust that he can have the solution to our problems, no matter how difficult those problems may seem. It's easy sometimes to feel like those disciples who are in that boat and wonder, do you even care as you're experiencing moments of frustration, moments of suffering, moments of sorrow? Moments where it doesn't seem like anything good is happening in your life. It's easy to ask, do you even care, God? Jesus, are you even there? Or are you just sleeping at the front of a boat? It's easy to ask it, but can we trust that as he calms the storm, he can step into moments of our lives that need calming, moments of our lives that need to experience peace as we lit the candle of peace today? Can we trust him to care more about us and even our situations than we do? I've said this before, a mentor of mine always reminds me I've got to reframe my problems. When I'm faced with frustration, when I'm faced with anxiety, I've got to reframe it and remember that I can trust Jesus because he is mighty God. He is the one who calms the storm in the sea. But more than that, he is the one who defeats death and rose from it. So do you trust him to be who he says he is? Second thing I'd say is we need to love Love our mighty God. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus encounters someone and he asks them, well, what are, how do we sum up the law? What is the most important thing for us to do 
if we're to be followers of God. And he responds, the first thing is to love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The most important thing he says, and some of us know that second part of that as well, and we're going to get to that. The most important thing he says is to love your God with all that you are. That's the most important thing. And that's, sometimes it maybe isn't easy. And it's not easy because of the way we maybe think about love. For many of us, we think about love as an emotional response. So when you do something kind to me, or you do something I really like, I love you. But love isn't an emotional response. If you've been married for any period of time, you know that your emotional responses aren't always very loving. Love is a choice. Love is an action. It's a decision to say, I will love. Not just, I will respond to how I feel in this moment. So when we choose to love God first, we choose to say, it's beyond what I feel. It's my will. It's my decision to engage God in this way. As God loves us, we choose to love him. And so how do we do that? Well, it's a choice, but it's demonstrated in what he says is the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus explains that if you love him, you follow his commands. And he says the two most important commands are to love God with all that you have and love your neighbor as you love yourself. You demonstrate your love for God in how you see other people. If you see people as commodities, as someone to be used, or as just annoying, and I think we've all experienced people like that, you're not really loving God because you're not loving what he said was a masterpiece. What he said was created good, though it was tainted by sin. When we love God with all we are, we make that choice and demonstrate it in how we love other people. It is a tangible, real way to demonstrate what love is. The third thing I think is we have to serve God. We believe that Jesus is mighty God, that our life looks like we trust him to be that into the situations that we encounter that maybe seem impossible or, or scary or uncertain. We demonstrate it for, through our love for him, which is demonstrated in our love for others, and we serve God. If he is who he says he is, Jesus is mighty God, we serve Jesus. Apostle Paul wrote in uh, Philippians chapter 2, uh, one of these beautiful poems that was, it was understood to be one of the earliest sections of the New Testament, uh, separate from the letter itself. It was something that was recited and known by followers of Jesus. In chapter 2, he wrote, Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. When we believe that Jesus is mighty God, we demonstrate it through our trust in him, believing that he can step into the moments where we need him to. We demonstrate it through our love for him first, 
which we show in how we treat others. And we do it humbly in service, not trying to be served, but doing what is good for others first. Doing what Jesus did. The child who was born of a virgin in impossible circumstances, who grew to be the man who died for our sins, for our forgiveness, so that we could experience life in its eternity in all of its fullness. When we believe Jesus is mighty God, our life reflects it. For that first century world, for the followers of Jesus who had countered him on the boat, they didn't know what it meant for him to be mighty God. You do. You have the opportunity to know the whole story of Jesus. They didn't know what Jesus would do when they were on that boat and that storm was approaching. You have the privilege of looking back at how he encountered that world and what he did to bring peace and hope. We have the privilege of knowing Jesus as mighty God. And because of that, we get to be his church, his people. When we celebrate Christmas, when we look through Advent and the waiting and the anticipation that the first century world had, we too wait for what will be, a hope of everything being made new. But we know that right now Jesus is who he says he is. And no matter what of our situation might be, whatever, whatever we may be facing or whatever we may encounter, Jesus is mighty God and invites us to trust him, love him, and serve with him until all things are made new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are uh, who you say you are. That I know in my own experience to have known you this way. And I pray that we all too know you this way. That we come to encounter you, Jesus, as not just the baby we celebrate on Christmas, but the one who is mighty God, our strong warrior, our hero, who encounters us in moments of desperation, in moments of despair and sorrow, and can calm the storms when we need them. I pray we come to know you this way, and we trust it to be true. Not just saying we know, but encountering you to be the real living God in our daily life. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that as we come to know you more and more, that we live lives that reflect our love for you and our love for each other. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.